Well, I'm glad to be with you guys this morning, really excited to start the book of Galatians. I wanted to remind you guys that this coming Friday morning is our first breakfast of champions here at Grace Bible Church Southwood. So if you signed up to help out with that breakfast for the A&M Consolidated Athletes, football, volleyball, cross-country, tennis, that'll be Friday morning. It'll start, we'll meet up here about 6 a.m., help set up and do some stuff like that. The athletes will show up at 7, we'll be done about 8, and we'll clean up to 8.30. If you can only show up for a little bit of that, that's great. We'll take you for any of that. So really excited to start that for the high school. Well, this last summer, August, about a month ago, Julie and I celebrated our sixth wedding anniversary, which is really fun for us. Um, It's always fun when you can can look at a marriage and say that it has grown in its vitality and strength and depth over the years. That we're stronger now than we were at the beginning. Because at the beginning of marriage, like all couples, we had to work through some struggles. I had one particular struggle that I really had to work through in marriage, and Julie was not the cause of it. It was her parents, my, my in-laws. Julie's parents are two of the most generous people I have ever met. They love to shower Julie and I with gifts that are, are over the top. Christmas is, uh, it, it's, it's really, it's absurd in the Nyman household. It, it is extravagant. I'm a 33-year-old guy. I kind of thought that I'd grown beyond the period of getting presents for Christmas. Uh, but that, that's not the case in the Nyman household. Uh, it takes me literally like two hours to unwrap all the presents that they get me for Christmas. Christmas and my birthday are so over the top. They are so outrageous in the Nyman household. But Her parents don't just wait for Christmas or my birthday, uh, for New Year's, Valentine's Day, Easter, uh, President's Day, Fourth of July, Memorial Day, Halloween, Thanksgiving, any excuse they have, they give us gifts. I'm getting packages all year long, incredible gifts from her parents, and they don't even wait for holidays. If it's a gloomy Monday, her mom puts a card in the mail and sends us a gift card, just for the heck of it, because they're incredibly generous people. And early in my marriage, I really struggled with their generosity, At first, my struggle was um, with doubt. I doubted that they were really that generous. I kept looking for the strings. What what strings are attached to this gift? When am I going to get the call? What do they tell me? What they're expecting me to do in return for their incredible generosity? Well, we're, we're six years on and I've not gotten that call. There don't seem to be any strings attached to their gift. So then I began to struggle in a new way. I began to struggle with my pride. I thought, well, what are you saying about me if you give me all these extravagant gifts? This is humbling. I feel a little bit guilty that you're giving me such outrageous gifts. I, I feel like I've got to do something in return. I've, I've got to give them something back. There's just two problems with that. First of all, to be as generous as them, I'd have to take out a second mortgage on my house. Can't, can't really afford to be as generous as them. And second, they don't want it. Julie's parents don't want us to return the favor. They are simply generous by nature. They just want to give us all kinds of stuff just to show us love. They are incredibly giving people, but it's hard for me to accept that. First, I doubt that it's real, that they're truly being that generous, and then I struggle with pride. I want to pay them back somehow. Well, that's human nature. It is part of fallen human nature to struggle to receive a gift. Now, that seems counterintuitive. Surely we can receive gifts, but no, think about it. When someone gives you something outrageous for free, what do you do? First, you look for the strings. There's got to be something attached. Where's the fine print? Second, if there really is no fine print, you feel a little guilty. Man, at least you've got to give them something, at least a thank you card, something in return. Well, 2,000 years ago, God gave to the human race the greatest gift imaginable. 
His son, Jesus Christ, died and rose again. God gave us the gift of eternal life through his son. Greatest gift imaginable. But since that point in time, 2,000 years ago, all of us, all of us men and women have struggled to believe that it's truly free. Can it really be free? Is salvation really as easy as me simply saying, thank you, God? Surely I got to do something in return. Surely I must have to do something back. It can't be that free, can it? It's not just unbelievers that struggle with the freeness of the gospel. It's believers too. We struggle with it. Genuine, sincere believers struggle to believe that salvation really is a free gift from God. That's why they add other things. It's, it's, it's a free gift plus I need to be baptized. It's a free gift plus I need to do lots of good works. It's a free gift plus I need to submit myself to Christ as Lord. They do all kinds of things to try to give back to God because it's so hard to simply receive a free gift. Well, that struggle was really the first and foundational struggle that the early church faced. When Jesus Christ left this planet and ascended into heaven, the greatest struggle that the apostles went through was with believing that the gospel really was a totally free gift. That struggle kept them up at night. They wrestled with it. That struggle motivated them to write a lot of stuff, including the book of Galatians. You can turn to Galatians chapter 1. Paul wrote the book of Galatians to address this struggle. How free is salvation? How free is the gospel? Don't we have to do something in return? Don't we have to give at least a little bit back to God? Paul wrote the book of Galatians to answer that question. And as is Paul's usual style, he jumps right into his answer. He begins right at the beginning. We're going to look at the intro this morning, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. If you'll look with me, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Let's pause there for a second. This is kind of standard in letters in the ancient world. You identify yourself, Paul. You identify your audience, these churches in Galatia. Now, usually in most of Paul's letter, the greeting is only two verses long. This one's extended. Paul throws a lot of theology into his greeting. We'll come back to that. Now, in every other letter that Paul writes in the New Testament, he follows his greetings with one of two things, either praise of his audience, he says all kinds of great things about him, or prayer to God. He turns and prays to God on their behalf. Paul does something different in Galatians. Only book of the Bible like this. Look in verse 6. I am amazed. I am shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Galatians is the only letter of Paul's that begins with a rebuke. Paul is angry as he writes the book of Galatians. He's agitated. He is worked up. Why is that? Why is Paul angry as he writes this letter? Well, we need to do a little background. 
Let's kind of set the tone for the book of Galatians. Uh, obviously, the book is written by Paul. This is, interestingly, one of the only books that even liberal scholars agree was written by the Apostle Paul. It's angry, and they think he was an angry guy. So everybody thinks Paul wrote the book. Who did he write to? Well, the churches in Galatia, an unusual letter. It's not written to one church, but to lots of churches. These are churches that were founded during Paul's first missionary journey, about 47 AD. It's kind of hard to see here, but these are churches in what is modern-day Turkey, the southern part of Turkey. It includes Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Pisidian, Antioch. These are the first churches that Paul planted. These are the churches of Galatia. Paul wrote the letter about two years after that first missionary journey, about 49 AD. Now, that's actually really, really early. That's about 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus. It's for sure the first writing of Paul. This is the first of his letters. It may actually be the first book at all of the entire New Testament. This might be the first thing written of the New Testament. Now, 49 AD, that's actually a really significant date. That was a period of significant confusion and uncertainty in the church. Now, I need to do a little review for you guys for a minute. We're going to review the early, church, his, the early history of the church as it's revealed in the book of Acts. Just going to walk you through this really quick. Okay, remember, Jesus ascends into heaven and the church begins in Acts chapter 2. Who's in the church at the beginning? It's all Jews. All Jews. Jews are the only people in the church for the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. It's just all, all Jews. That's the only people getting in. But Acts chapter 8, something significant happens. The gospel extends to Samaritans. Those are half Jews. Now they're brought into the church. And then Acts chapter 10, that's really the the big chapter of the book of Acts, the watershed chapter, because the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And it's a big surprise. No one was expecting God to care about the Gentiles. This is shocking. Uh, It's really fun to read Acts chapter 10. The apostles didn't get it for a while. Peter really didn't get that God cared about the Gentiles. At the beginning of Acts chapter 10, God shows up to this man, this Gentile named Cornelius. And he says, Cornelius, I want to do something for you. I want you to send a messenger and get a man named Peter who will come and give you my message. He will give you my gospel. So Cornelius sends a messenger, but God knows that Peter's going to have a hard time going and talking to Cornelius. See, Peter's a Jew, and Jews don't hang out with Gentiles, so it's going to be hard for Peter to accept this invitation. So when Peter's really, really hungry, God puts him into a trance, and God shows him this vision, a vision of a sheep being lowered down from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals on it, pigs, lobsters, and God says, Peter, rise and eat. But Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. But God says, what I have declared to be clean is clean. Peter doesn't get it at first, and so the vision repeats a second time. Still doesn't get it, vision repeats a third time, and then immediately the messenger knocks on the door and says, Peter, come with me, please. God has said that you're going to bring a message to my master Cornelius. So Peter goes, and Peter begins to get it. He begins to understand God does care about the Gentiles. God does want the gospel brought to the Gentiles. So Peter declares to Cornelius and his family who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And immediately Cornelius believes and the Holy Spirit falls upon him and all kinds of miracles are happening. It's amazing. But there's something really significant that we don't want to miss in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is no normal Gentile. He is what the Bible calls a God-fearer. A Gentile who had chosen to believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel, and practice the Jewish law. Uh, Cornelius and his family basically acted like Jews. All of the early Gentiles who got into the church were God-fears. They were Gentiles who acted like Jews, who practiced the Mosaic law. So what lesson does Peter and the early church learn? 
What lesson does Peter learn? Well, uh, Gentiles can come in, but it's through faith plus obedience to the law. From Acts 10 all the way until Acts 15, all of the church simply assumes that salvation is by faith in Christ plus obedience to the law. They're not even questioning that. The Jews had been required to obey the Mosaic law for 1,500 years. Remember our study of the covenants? They had been required by God to obey the law for 1,500 years. It was the Mosaic law that regulated their religious life, that made them part of the nation of Israel. And so surely they've got to keep obeying it. It's hard to change a habit after 1,500 years. Surely you must continue to be required to obey the Mosaic law. If Jews have to do it, surely Gentiles do too. Everyone just assumed that you were saved by faith plus works of the law. That's a natural assumption. But then Paul comes along. Paul, who was a Jew, who was a Pharisee, who was an expert in the Mosaic law, he comes along and he gets a revelation from Jesus Christ and he begins to go to a different set of Gentiles. Gentiles who were pagans, Gentiles who were idolaters, who didn't know anything about Yahweh or the Mosaic Law. And he begins to preach to them that they can be saved, they can have a relationship with God through faith alone. They don't have to obey the Mosaic Law. Just by believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they can be saved. Paul says no to the assumption that all the rest of the apostles are making. You don't have to follow the Mosaic Law. Salvation comes by faith alone. This is kind of where we get the title for the book of Galatians, our series this semester. You may have seen on the title screen is Galatians, one work, one faith, one family. That's the message of the book of Galatians, that we are brought into the one family of God through faith in the one work, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's Paul's message. What is required for Gentiles to enter the church? Faith alone. Now, Paul actually goes further than that. He says, not only do Gentiles enter the church and become part of the family of God through faith alone, but Jews too. You Jews have been obeying the law for 1,500 years. You don't gotta do that anymore. The law doesn't get you into the church. The law doesn't make you right with God. It's by faith alone. That's Paul's gospel. But that was really controversial in the early church incredibly controversial. In fact, all of the other apostles are gonna struggle with this. We're gonna get to Acts chapter two in about a week and Paul is gonna have to go toe-to-toe with Peter and with James and with Barnabas because they're not buying it yet. They're struggling with it. Can the gospel really be by faith alone? Can salvation really be a free gift? You don't have to work for it? That's crazy, Paul. They're gonna struggle with it for about another year. Galatians is written in 49 AD, 50 AD, a whole group, all of the apostles gather in the city of Jerusalem for a council meeting that's recorded in Acts chapter 15, and that's where they will finally settle the issue in Paul's favor. Okay, so a year after the book that we're studying this semester is when the, the issue is settled, the gospel really is free. But in the meantime, during this year of uncertainty, of confusion in the church, Paul has a bunch of enemies, a bunch of opponents in the church who basically take matters into their own hands. They take advantage of the uncertainty that's going on in the church and they begin to retrace Paul's steps during his first missionary journey. They go back to all of those churches in order to correct the Gentiles. So let's talk about these opponents for a minute. Who are these guys? Well, Paul doesn't tell us a ton in Galatians about them, but he does tell us something significant in Acts 15. These guys come back to Jerusalem and participate in that council that goes on in Acts 15, and we find out who they are. We're told, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. 
In other words, this attack that's coming upon Paul and upon his gospel is from the inside. It's believers. It's those who've trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. They're Jewish believers, but they're also experts in the law. They're from the sect of the Pharisees, and they're not ready to give the law up yet. They really love the law. They really like practicing law. They're not ready to give that up yet. So what do they say to Gentiles? What must Gentiles do to get into the church? Well, faith in the work of Christ is a great start. That's a good first step, you guys. Faith, that's a way to kick it off. Good job. But now you got to obey. If you want to be in with God, you have to exercise faith plus obedience to the law. In other words, these guys are saying, Paul just gave you half the gospel. He just gave you half the truth. He just really, he gave you the easy part. Paul's gospel is too easy. You should have known that. But you see, Paul's a people pleaser. Paul wants you to like him. And so he just gave you the easy part of the gospel. He left out the hard part. You gotta obey. Faith is a good start, but you gotta obey. Now, let's talk for a minute about these guys' motives just so we have a sense of why they're doing this as we go through Galatians this semester. Turn to chapter six. Let's find out what's motivating these opponents of Paul. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. That's part of the obedience to the law that they were requiring. Simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Paul tells us that these guys are attacking these churches for two reasons. Number one, because of pride. These guys are experts in the Jewish law. Obeying and understanding the Jewish law makes them feel awesome. Makes them feel superior to common mere people. And so uh, they're not okay with Paul's new gospel. If the law is set aside, then what reason do they have for superiority anymore? So out of pride, they go and try to compel the Gentiles to become like them, to follow their example. But it's not just pride. There's also self-protection going on here. Interesting things going on in Israel in 49 AD. There was a resurgence of a group we call the Zealots. Zealots are Jews who desire to enforce Jewish purity, purity of the Jewish people, purity of the Jewish religion, and they'll take matters into their own hands and they'll use violence to do it. So when they see a Jew have supper with a Gentile, they'll follow that Jew home and kill him. When they see Jews and Gentiles hanging out, they just put them to death because they won't tolerate that. So obviously, if you're a Jewish believer in the early church, it's kind of dangerous for you because now the gospel's gone to Gentiles and you know that zealots are watching. If they see you go over to that Gentile's house, they'll kill you. Okay, there was one way to escape the zealot's persecution. Turn that Gentile into a Jew. If you can make that Gentile just like you, get them circumcised, get them obeying the Mosaic law, then the zealots have no problem with them. So these guys are going out and they're spreading this false gospel because they want to escape persecution of their faith. They don't want to hang out with Gentiles unless those Gentiles act like Jews so that they will not be troubled by the zealots. That's kind of what's going on here. But let's kind of draw this together and clarify. What is it that distinguishes Paul from the bad guys in the book of Galatians? We'll be seeing them all semester long. What's the big difference between these two? Paul and these bad guys. Well, probably both of them are believers. And both of them declare that the first step of salvation is to place your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They all agree there, but then the question is, what's next? What else beyond faith do you have to do to be saved and to enter the church according to Paul's gospel? Nothing. 
If you've exercised faith, you're done. According to their gospel, the gospel of these opponents, faith is only a start. You have to follow it with works. If you don't work, you're not saved. Okay, so that's the disagreement going on in the book of Galatians. Now, Paul's really frustrated about it. He wants to refute these guys. He wants to put them in their place. He wants to answer their charges. And so he doesn't waste time entering into the debate. The intro of letters in the ancient world, the first part of most letters in, in ancient Greek society was really just filler material. We wouldn't study the beginning of a letter in the ancient world like we're doing today for most letters. It's, it's just filler material. Here's who I am. Here's who you are. Have a nice day. That's basically how most letters begin in the ancient world. But Paul doesn't waste time. Even in these first 10 verses, right at the beginning of the book, he immediately enters into the core of his argument in the book. He wants his audience to understand from the very beginning exactly what the gospel is. He immediately lays out for them. He reminds them, because he taught them this two years before, he reminds them of two key truths about the one and only gospel. So that's what I want us to look at this morning, the two things that Paul reminds his audience about the gospel. Number one, the one true gospel is all about Jesus. The one true gospel is all about Jesus. It's completely centered on Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 6 of chapter 1. Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. Uh, Paul tells us here, Christianity is really different than most other religions. In, In most religions in this world, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, most religions teach you how to make your way to God. How how to find God, how to seek God out. Christianity doesn't teach you that. Christianity says you can't take the first step towards God. He seeks you out. Christianity proclaims that God calls you. He initiates with you. He doesn't do it because you're cool. He doesn't do it because of your merit or your works. He does it by grace. His undeserved favor. That's what motivates God. And where is all of that grace found? In Christ. It is the grace of Christ. All of God's goodness to us, all of his favor to us comes through Jesus Christ, his son. God's grace doesn't come through Jesus plus our works. It doesn't come through Jesus plus the church. All comes completely through Jesus Christ, through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And, and what exactly is that work? What is it that Jesus did for us that has become the source of God's grace? Well, two things. It's a work that comes in two parts. Part one is in verse four. Who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The gospel centers on the work of Jesus Christ and the first part of that work is that Jesus gave himself for our sins. Now, verse four is chock full of theology. You could write a whole textbook about what verse four says. I'll just go through a few things that it tells us about the death of Jesus Christ. Number one, he gave himself. The death of Christ was voluntary. Gave in Greek is to give willingly as a gift. Jesus was not coerced onto the cross. The Romans, the Jews, they did not force him onto the cross. His death was by his own free choice. In John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Jesus was no victim on the cross. He walked to the cross willingly. When he's in the garden of Gethsemane and the Jews come to arrest him, Peter pulls out his sword and Jesus says, put it away, Peter, Do you not realize I could ask my father and he would put at my disposal 12 legions of angels at my defense, thousands of angels at my defense if I want them, but no, 
The death of Christ was voluntary. He willingly went to the cross of his own free will. Second, it was costly. Death of Jesus was costly. Jesus' whole life, when you read about Jesus in the Gospels, you realize it was a life of unending sacrifice. Throughout his life, he sacrificed, he gave up. It cost him to come be among us. That sacrifice began at the very beginning, the story that we celebrate in Christmas. Uh, Jesus left the ease, the comfort of heaven. Jesus, you realize, he had never sweated before he came to earth. He had never grown tired before he came to earth. He never experienced pain. He sacrificed the comfort and ease of heaven to be among us. Second, it cost him his status. Here he is in heaven, the creator of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth. He gives that up to become a peasant, a carpenter among us. Isaiah says he came as one having no stately form that we would look upon him and think he was great. Third, he gives up immeasurable wealth. In heaven, he owned everything. The whole universe is his, yet in his ministry on earth, we're told that he had no place to lay his head. He had nothing to call his own. That life of sacrifice, it culminates on the cross when Jesus gives up what is most precious. He gives up himself. He gives up both his physical life, Jesus died on the cross, as well as, and even more importantly, his spiritual life. I don't know if you guys realize that Jesus on the cross doesn't just physically die, he spiritually dies. We define spiritual life as relationship with God the Father. Jesus gave that up for us on the cross. That's why from the cross he proclaims, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why are you separated from me? Jesus sacrificed not just his physical life, but his spiritual life on the cross. That brings us to the third thing we learn. He did it for our sins. The death of Jesus is what we call substitutionary. It takes our place. He didn't die as our example He didn't die as as just being a good guy. He died in our place as a substitute for our sins. Now, to understand this aspect of what Paul's saying happened on the cross, we gotta talk about that word sin for a moment. Why are our sins such a big deal? I mean, I'm just gonna guess, in this audience right here, I'm guessing that we're not all that bad. Probably, I hope, none of us are are murderers, terrorists, thieves. Hope none of you are. I'm gonna assume you're not. We're not really that bad. We're not as bad as so many people in this world. So why are sins such a big deal? Well, let me kind of walk you through that. Bible declares very clearly that God is perfect. God is perfect in every way. He's not like things in this world that break down, that disappoint you, that let you down. God's perfect in every way. And among his perfections, we include justice and truth. God is never unjust and God never lies. Would you agree with that? It's part of the character of God. That's a good thing. You don't want God to be unjust. You don't want him to lie. That would be bad. So God is always just, is always truthful. Well, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve. And what does he tell them? He tells them, Adam and Eve, you can do anything you want in my whole garden, just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only thing you can't do. Don't do that. If you do it, the consequence will be what? In Hebrew, death, death. You will surely die. Not just physical death, not only will you lose your physical life, but spiritually you will die. You will be eternally separated from me if you do that. God laid it right out there. He told them, he wasn't withholding from them. He told them clearly, if you do this, this will be the consequence. So what do Adam and Eve do? I like boneheads, they go and eat of the tree. They give in, they blow it. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then God shows up. God says, you've rebelled against me. That's that's the rebellion that they've now passed to us. They chose to rebel against God and they passed rebellion on to all of their progeny. All of us from the womb rebel against God. 
We know what we should do, and we don't do it. We break God's law. We rebel against him, and the the consequence of our rebellion is the same as the consequence of theirs. Death, death. Physical death, spiritual death. Okay, so here's where the perfections of God come into play. Remember, God is never unjust, and God never lies. He told us what the consequence of sin would be. What? Physical death, spiritual death. So can God overlook our sins? No, it's not possible for him. Because he is always just and always truthful, he must punish our sins and the punishment is death. And that's where Jesus steps in. Jesus takes the punishment we deserve in our place. Jesus dies in our place. Let me give you kind of an analogy to think about this. It's as if the whole universe were one big courtroom. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are sitting on the bench judging the universe and we stand before them. It's our turn for judgment. So you're standing there before the, the seat of justice and, and you know you're guilty. Everybody in the courtroom knows you're guilty. God was very clear in what you needed to do and you didn't do it. You broke his law. You stand there as the accused and you know what the penalty is. He was very clear. Penalty's death. So God the Father looks down at you. You know that you're about to hear his penalty, his sentence of death, but then he looks over to his right at his son Jesus, the vice judge of the universe. And Jesus willingly stands up and he lays aside his robe. And he comes and he stands beside you and Jesus says to God the Father, Father, I willingly take all of their sins upon myself and in exchange I give them all of my righteousness. I become the sinner, they become the righteous one. And God the Father pounds his gavel on the bench and he looks at his son and he says, I declare you guilty. Bailiff, lead him away to execution. And then he looks at us and he says, I declare you not guilty. I declare you eternally righteous. You are free to go. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus took our sins and gave us in exchange his righteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took our sin and gave us in exchange his righteousness. That's the third thing that Paul wants us to understand about the death of Jesus. Fourth thing, it was purposeful. The verse continues, we've only talked about the very beginning of it, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. It's helpful to know that the death of Jesus on the cross wasn't an accident. God wasn't caught by surprise. Oh no, what are they doing with my son? (laughs) He knew what was going to happen. The cross was part of God's eternal plan for us. God knew that we were gonna sin and so he crafted a plan of redemption where he would step in in our place and fix what we broke. That's what the cross is about. It's about God fixing what we broke, Jesus taking our place. Now, if this is where the story ended, that that Jesus gave himself for our sins, then actually the Bible would be a tragedy. It'd be horrible news. Jesus is dead, He's, he's in the grave, but that's not where it ends. Look at verse one. Verse one is great news. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The work of Jesus comes in two parts separated by three days. He dies, three days later, he's raised from the dead. 
That is incredibly good news. God the Father reaches down, and now that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins, God the Father restores him to life, both physical life and spiritual life. That division created between Father and Son is restored, it is healed. And in his resurrection, Jesus conquers for us sin and death and Satan. He wipes out our enemies. This is the, the moment of victory for God in the Bible. I hope you guys realize the resurrection isn't just like some afterthought we tack on to the gospel. It's not like, like the little part of the gospel. It's central. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, that is central to all of our hope, to all of our salvation. That is the gospel. Really, that, that's what it all boils down to. As we go through the book of Galatians this semester, Paul will focus us on one work. The gospel boils down to one work, not a work that we do, but the work that Jesus did on the cross and in the grave when he died for our sins and then rose from the dead. That's what the gospel's all about. That's the first thing that Paul wants us to understand here in the introduction. Second thing, though, he wants us to understand this is the only way to God. This gospel that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead, that is the only way to God. Gospel, in case you guys don't know, gospel means literally good news. When I use the word gospel, I'm talking about the good news that we can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. Uh, look with me at verse seven. So you have these other guys coming in and, and they, they are proclaiming a different gospel, a better gospel, but what does Paul say about their gospel? Which is really not another. Paul's saying these, these guys are coming and they're telling you that they've got a better gospel. I want you guys to realize they don't have a better gospel because there is no other gospel. There is no other good news of how you can be reconciled to God. There is no other way to be made right with God. It only comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do. That's why Paul gets so angry in the next couple of verses. Look with me, verse 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, he is to be accursed. If an angel comes and stands before you and proclaims a gospel that differs from what I just said, faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, don't believe him because there is no other way to get to God. Instead, call a curse from God down upon him. Paul wants us to understand there is only one way to God. It's through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything else is a dead end. The the law, the Jewish law that Jews continue to practice today, Go to Jerusalem, you'll see them practicing the law today. Guess what? That's a dead end. That can't get you to God. That can't reconcile you to God. That's the same with all other religions in this world. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, all other religions are a dead end. None of them can earn your way to God. None of them can can bring you to God, can reconcile you to God. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of really nice sincere, genuine believers in these other religions, people who are very loving. Yes, there are, but guess what? They're all wrong. They are all mistaken. Now, this is really the part of my sermon that if our society was listening, this is when they'd get mad. This is when they get offended. America doesn't get mad that we come to church. They're fine with us getting together in this building. They're not offended that we sing. They're okay that we sing praises to God. They're okay that we talk about Jesus. They're even okay if we say that we believe that we're saved through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The world's fine with that. Where they get mad is when we say it is only through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can be saved. When we claim exclusivity, 
that it is only through the gospel that the Bible proclaims that we can be saved, then the world gets mad. They say that we're being harsh, that we're being unloving because we're not including others. So is that unloving when we claim exclusivity? When we say that the gospel is the only way to get to God, are we being unloving? I want to give you kind of an illustration to put this in perspective. I want you to imagine for a moment you work in a skyscraper. And your company is located way up, right, way up high in this skyscraper. And on a particular day, you're cleaning your office in the morning and you come across a map, a schematic of the building. And you see your floor and, and you spend a little time kind of looking over it. You're curious. You see where all the doors are. You see where the hallways lead. You see where the one stairway is. And then as, as fortune would have it, later that day, you and your coworkers are all in the cafeteria together and the fire alarm goes off. And smoke begins to come in from under the doors and there's panic. Everyone is in a panic and you hear one guy yell, we gotta go through this door. But another guy yells, no, it's through this door. Another person says, no, it's this hallway. Another, no, it's behind us. Now what's the right thing to do? What is love at that moment? Is it to let everyone in the name of tolerance, in the name of acceptance, let everyone go their own way while you quietly slip out the only door that you know leads to a stairway? No, that's unloving. That's harsh. That's horrible. Love is to scream at the top of your lungs, hey, everybody, I just saw a map. I know the one door out of here. Claiming that the gospel is exclusive is not harsh. It is love. By God's grace, we know the one way that we can be made right with God, the one way in all the universe. Let us not keep our mouths shut. Let us get up on the tops of buildings, the tops of mountains, and cry out, we know the way. Follow us. That's love. When we go share the truth of the gospel. The the exclusivity of the gospel is really why Paul gets so mad. You you notice that word curse there in chapter one. Paul gets really mad in Galatians. He calls the curse of God upon these false teachers. Not may they go to hell, but may the the just penalty, the just punishment of God fall upon them. Why is he so mad? Because it's the gospel at stake. These guys are distorting the gospel and there's nothing more important in life than getting the gospel right. It is the one and only way to be made right with God. The gospel is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of heaven and hell. It is okay to get mad when people are messing with the gospel. I don't know if you know that the Bible teaches you that. Anger's okay if it's about the right things. It's okay to get angry when it's about the right things. Not when it's about stuff like getting stuck behind a slow driver. That's not okay to get angry about. Not when it's about the Aggies losing. That's not okay to get angry about. What's okay to get angry about is when people mess with the gospel. When they add works to the gospel, when they add the law to the gospel, when they distort the gospel, that's okay to get angry about because there's nothing more important than getting the gospel right. It is the one and only way in the universe for human beings to be made right with God. So let's draw this to application. I want to ask you very directly this morning, have you received that gospel it's a pretty big audience here, a bunch of you folks here, three, four hundred people in this room. Statistically, I'm guessing that there are some of you who maybe this is the very first time you've heard the gospel really clearly. You've not yet had a moment in your life when you simply turn to God and say, God, thank you. I received the gift of Jesus' death for my sins and resurrection. This morning, my challenge to you is please think clearly and seriously about the gospel. 
Think through, what is it holding you back? Is it some intellectual objection? Can you just not buy this whole Jesus thing, that there was really a Jesus, that he was God's son, that he died, that he rose from the dead? If there's something intellectual holding you back, please come talk to me or one of the other leaders at the church. We would love to talk to you about those objections. Or maybe what's holding you back is you just can't believe it could be that easy. You just can't believe it could be that free. Surely you've got to work. Surely you've got to come to church. You've got to do good stuff to your neighbors. You just keep holding on to your works because it can't be that free. Let me challenge you, please. Let go of trying to pay God back. Let go of trying to do it in your own strength. It is a free gift. Just receive it. Just tell God this morning, God, I'm a sinner. I am, I am worthy of punishment, but I believe that Jesus died to pay my penalty and then he rose from the dead. I accept the gift of Jesus in my place. Just receive it. For the rest of us who have received that gospel, I think the challenge for us this morning is to make sure we can communicate it clearly. Very specifically, I want to challenge every one of you in this room. This week, I want you to work on your presentation of the gospel so that you can share the gospel with someone clearly in 30 seconds. 30 seconds, that's your goal. You need to be able to share it clearly in 30 seconds. Let let me give you a little uh, help with that, something you can remember. The gospel really boils down very simply to a sentence. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you are saved if you simply believe it. Three points. Jesus died for your sins. If you're speaking to someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you're saved if you simply believe it. Now, you can back that up with some verses. There's more stuff that you can put there, but that's the bare bones of the gospel. I want to challenge all of you, be ready next week to share that message in 30 seconds. Now, next week, we have a coffee social after church, and so uh, we're going to be kind of wandering around in the foyer. I reserve the right to come sit down next to you, the coffee social, and ask you to share the gospel with me clearly in 30 seconds. You need to be ready to do that. Now, you also should be ready to do that with each other. If, if you're here with a spouse or with your family, uh, why don't you set aside a little time this week? Maybe turn the TV off for just 30 minutes and together, get together and talk about the gospel. Practice. How do we share this clearly in 30 seconds? Now, why are we doing that? Why are we practicing? Because the gospel is the most important message you will ever share. It is the one and only way that men and women can be saved. It is worth getting right. (laughs) It is crucial that we get it right. So work on it this week. Memorize it. Make sure you can share it clearly in 30 seconds. I'll test you next week, okay? Now let's go ahead and pray for God to help us to be a people who not only believe that we're saved by grace, but step forward and take a risk to share it with others. God, thank you so much. That we are saved, we are fixed, we are given eternal life, we are brought into the church not by anything that we do, but simply by what Jesus did for us. Thank you so much for sending your own son who you love more than anything else to earth to die in our place. Thank you for giving us his righteousness. Thank you for placing our sins upon his back. Thank you that he willingly died as a substitute in our place. Thank you then for raising him from the dead, for conquering death and sin and Satan and giving us hope in eternity. Thank you so much that eternal life comes simply by a gift. God, you're the greatest giver ever. You've given us an extravagant gift. Help us, Father, please, to believe that it's free. Help us to quit looking for strings. Help us to quit trying to pay you back. Help us to simply receive it as the free gift that it is. And I pray then that this week, Lord, that every one of us who have received that gift would learn how to share it clearly with others. 
that we would be willing to get up off the couch to take a risk and to share it with the people around us, that we would remember that that is the only way to show them love, that it is not love to keep our mouths shut. Help us, Lord, to share the truth of your gospel, the one and only way that we can be made right with you. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. As we continue to go through the book of Galatians this semester, I pray for clarity. I pray that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would bind Satan from our midst. I pray that every one of us would walk away from this semester in Galatians with a crystal clear understanding of the gospel, understanding why it matters, understanding how our works fit in. I just pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity, that you would change us and grow us and revive us to be a people after your own heart through the book of Galatians. Thank you for the privilege of studying your word. It is a gift to us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.